Hi everyone, I'm Rosemary Miller here with Emma Whitford, an education reporter here at Forbes, here to tell us about the surge in homeschooling. Thank you so much for joining me today, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So Emma, could you tell us what are some of the factors that have contributed to the surge in homeschooling? There was a lot of parents that were upset with how schooling was going during the pandemic. A lot of kids were sent home, they had to do online schooling, and that was very dissatisfying and for a lot of students ineffective for their learning during that time. So we did see a big surge in the number of families that decided to homeschool children during the pandemic. But even before that happened, there was a growing trend towards homeschooling. Parents either wanted to take greater control of their child's cultural or religious education, they may have wanted to create a more individualized curriculum for their child. Maybe they weren't being challenged at school or they were having too many difficulties at school. Um, and then we also saw parents turn to homeschooling because of social factors, like maybe their, their student was being bullied at school. So there are a lot of reasons why, why parents are deciding to teach their kids at home. You know, I think about the social factor a lot. Uh, kids are being bullied at school, but doesn't school in a way help you acclimate to the real world? Just like engaging with people, uh, knowing how to deal with different personalities. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and something that a lot of parents grapple with when making this decision. There's obviously huge benefits to be had when students are able to interact with each other, with their peers, with, with their teachers. Um, but there's also detriments for students that are facing bullying every day. So it's definitely a balance and something that parents have to consider on a case-by-case -case basis. I do know that there are families that will try and supplement that sort of social education uh, through other ways, getting them involved in extracurriculars where they can interact with kids their age. Um, and just getting them out into their communities, even if they're not finding that through going to school every day. Mm, that makes sense. And at least they don't have to be a part of the popularity contest at school. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, Emma, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about ESAs. Before we get too deep in that, could you tell us just quickly, like, what is that? Yeah, so an ESA is an education savings account or sometimes called an education scholarship account. It's something that a growing number of states are implementing, and it's essentially a chunk of money paid for by taxpayer, taxpayers that is given to parents, and those parents can spend it on a variety of things um, that are deemed acceptable by the state. It could be homeschooling expenses, it could be private school tuition, it could be additional tutoring services for students that attend public school, and it's essentially helping parents take more control of their child's education. And how have ESAs evolved since 2020, 2020 the, before the pandemic? They've gotten a lot more popular. In 2020, there were four different ESA programs that had been passed and only three were operating. Now there are 13 states that have implemented ESA programs and some of them have multiple programs. They might have a universal scholarship for all resident students and maybe a larger scholarship for students with disabilities. That's one way that you see those divided pretty frequently. Um, so it's becoming pretty popular even in the last couple of years. And looking ahead, there's a lot of legislation that's being watched, bills being proposed, 
in even more states to implement ESAs. So how have ESAs been utilized by parents to customize their children's homeschooling education? Yeah, so the parents that we talked to have used ESAs to pay for things like online schooling curriculums. So maybe their child attends school at home, but they do it completely virtually. So in this case, the parent isn't necessarily the teacher. They don't need to come up with a curriculum on their own, but the student can still be doing their schooling at home. Uh, so tuition for something like that would be paid for with an ESA. Uh, there are other parents that are sending their kids to what are called micro schools, um, and that can be paid for using an ESA. So they can also um, sort of make a hodgepodge curriculum, maybe pay for tutoring on one site and a math curriculum on another. Um, and all of those expenses, if the state approves it, can be paid for with an ESA. Okay, there are too many schools for me. I have never heard of a micro school. What is that, Emma? <laughs> Yeah, that was new to me as well. Um, it's essentially like a one-room schoolhouse where a dozen to two dozen kids show up. There's a couple of teachers there, but oftentimes the kids are working on their own individualized curriculum, and they it's sort of the best of both worlds. You have that in-person social aspect. You've got other students around you and teachers to help you, but then you're able to work at your own pace on your own curriculum. So they're okay. like... Exactly what the name entails, tiny little micro schools. Like, when did these become popular? I, like, once again, never heard of it. You said you've never heard of it and you do education. So <laughs> when did this become popular? Yeah, I remember first reading about um, pods that were popping up during the pandemic. They were pretty informal. It would usually be a group of families, maybe neighbors that wanted to share the burden of needing to educate their children at home when schools were shut down. So they gather all the neighborhood kids and maybe the parents would either take turns teaching or they would hire a tutor or a teacher to come in and, and teach those kids. Um, they've become more formalized. There's a, a, an ed tech company based in Boston called KaiPod. Uh, they offer micro schools. I think there's 19 different programs across the country. Um, so you can pay tuition to KaiPod and then send your child there for three, four or five days a week. Um, and then they're also helping teachers create their own micro schools. So there might be a, a local program that's being set up in, in your state. So as we're seeing, there is a decline in startup funding. And I'm wondering, how is that affecting the ed tech industry? Yeah, so there was a big boom in ed tech funding during the pandemic, reaching into the 2021 billion um, in funding for, for those companies. And we've seen that since decline. I think it was a little over 3 billion in 2023, which is still higher than what ed tech funding was before the pandemic, so that's notable. But there were also just so many new ed tech companies popping up during the pandemic in 2020, 2021. So there's a lot more people competing for that funding. Um, so while I still think you know the industry is is pretty healthy and doing pretty well, companies are just going to need to find new revenue, new customers, and and ways to compete with each other. Well, Emma, can you delve into how online learning platforms are adopting to cater to the homeschooling market? Yeah, 
There are quite a few platforms that will sell now directly to parents. So instead of needing to go through a private or public school system to access a platform, you can just buy a subscription, maybe monthly, yearly, or on a per class basis. So that's obviously a lot easier for parents to access for their children. Um, and I think that companies that are interested in getting their hands on some of these ESA dollars are going to want to make sure that their product is available for parents to purchase. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. For sure.